welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about 2019's Avengers Endgame. You've probably heard of it. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 94%, and the critics' consensus reads, exciting, entertaining, and emotionally impactful, Avengers Endgame does what it takes to deliver a satisfying finale to Marvel's epic Infinity Saga. The movie was well-received, and personally, I really enjoyed it. We're continuing our series of episodes focused on the property department, and my guest today is Travis Bobbitt, Assistant Property Manager. Travis, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Skid. So, Travis, tell me more about your history with Marvel Studios before Avengers Endgame. Um, so, I was introduced to Marvel Studios uh, at the very early stages. I was on a film called uh, Rush Hour 3, and we were actually kind of covering for um, their prop master who had done uh, the previous rush hours. And so we were knowing, we knew that we weren't going to, you know, uh, complete that film. We were just covering for someone. And we got a call for a film called Iron Man, which, uh, funny enough, I wasn't much of a comic book fan growing up. But uh, so I had never heard of it before and um, had to do a lot of research to learn about it of course and now it's been some years so i know all about all the comic all the marvel comics and i've done tons of research and worked on a lot of the films so now i would consider myself um, an expert on it but at the time i had i had no idea what was going on it was just kind of a another film that we were going to be working on and it turned out to be such an epic start to a huge franchise yeah good point there that i don't think even they anticipated what it was going to do at the time when they were when they had Iron Man, although maybe we can speak more to that. Let me ask you a question, Travis. When you said we, uh, were you working with your father, Russell Bobbitt, uh, who yes. was the prop minister at that time as well? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've worked with my dad. I think I started over 19 years ago in the early 2000s. Um, uh, I come from a long background of filmmakers. Uh, we started, and I was born and raised in Hollywood pretty much. I mean, Tarzana, California, uh -huh. uh, which is uh, just in the valley there. So um, kind of old Hollywood family, if you will. So uncles, father, cousins, you know, we have, we have the gamut. We have probably every position to make a film of our own in our family. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we, I was working with my father at the time and he got the call from uh, Kevin Feige and, and Louis Esposito um, to make Iron Man. And so you guys came out with Iron Man and I don't imagine you've done every movie since. They must be shooting some movies in parallel that it would be difficult to coordinate between, but you've been consistently doing Marvel movies since then, like one every year. Is that a fair? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes two. Um, my dad has, has done, by, done by far more than I have. Uh, I took a little bit of a break to run my own business for a while and things like that. But um, yeah, they've kept him pretty solidly employed. I think there's been just a few films that we have done or my dad has done that hasn't been Marvel films since I think it, uh, I got a call one day. I know this is off topic, but I got a call one day from my dad. It's like, Oh, I'm doing another movie. Do you want to come do it? He's like, it's just this small one. It's no big deal. Low budget kind of in between the big Marvel films thing. I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm busy right now, but what's it called? And he's like, Oh, it's the hangover. <laughs> which i think uh, that year was like the high it was like the best movie of the year or highest grossing i mean it didn't win any i don't think it won any awards but i think it was like one of the higher grossing movies of the year i'm like that's that's your little in-between film it was 
pretty funny. But um, yeah, and so like I think recently also in between Marvel films, we just did Bad Boys 3. Uh, so we do some stuff in between yeah. or, or around, but usually, yeah, we do one or two films a year with Marvel. But so tell me how this led up to Avengers Endgame. And as I understand it, you shot Infinity War and Endgame at the same time. We did. We did. So um, it's rare in this industry, but this was a time that I think I had job security for over two years where I knew I was going to be going to work every single day for, I think it was about two and a half years. We touched 2016. 2017 and 2018. I think the visual effects department might have touched a few more years also. Um, but for our department, we, we were spanned over three years, but it was a two and a half year span of work. What's interesting is a cool little anecdote. I don't know, maybe you know or not, but there were things like um, that Kevin Feige would do on Iron Man that nobody had any idea what we were doing or why we were doing it but it was in the plan like endgame was in the plan during iron man one you know however many 10 12 years prior uh, it's it's actually crazy like there's a a map of wakanda in the set on iron man one and nobody wow. knew what wakanda was nobody knew we were, there was ever going to be a film called black panther or anything like that and i believe in thor one also we made the infinity gauntlet on Thor one. Uh, and I say, we, I think it was my department cause I didn't work on Thor one, but it was in like, it's they, they call them Easter eggs, like Disney little Easter eggs. Right. And so there's these, there's been these end game Easter eggs all the way from Iron Man one, from Thor one, the infinity gauntlet was there and literally nobody knew what it was whatsoever. Why, why they were making it, why it was sitting there or what it was going to be. But, but Kevin and, and the guys at, at Marvel studios, they had a plan. This was all a big, long, amazing awesome plan and she got to see a lot of it come together so even those early as you said the early easter eggs in iron man finally come to fruition with these films travis clarify for me on the timeline how long did you guys have to prep these films and then how long were you guys actually filming um so for something this scale we needed a longer period of time to prep obviously doing two epic films all at once so i think we prepped for roughly six months uh before filming and then we filmed a lot of, I don't know what you might call block shooting. So we were, you know, filming Infinity War and Endgame both at the same time. Uh, and so any locations or any sets that overlapped Avengers Compound or some stuff in Scotland or whatever, um, we, would, we would actually shoot both at the same time. And we filmed for about a year. And then there was a little bit of a break. And then we came back for what was called, I guess, additional photography which would normally be considered reshoots. But in this case, it was longer than the entire film schedule of Bad Boys 3 is the additional <laughs> photography. Uh -huh. So, so it's, it's more like the schedule of an entire normal-sized feature film was just the additional photography part. And then we wrapped for a considerable amount of time because all the assets that we manufacture or that we've pulled from our warehouses or, or Marvel's assets have to be organized very specifically and then go back into kind of their uh, asset vault, if you will. I want to talk more about that, but let me ask you first. So what size team did you have on these movies? Our team spreads quickly, right? So we have a lot of vendors that help us to manufacture stuff because obviously we can't manufacture everything on our own quick enough and at a high enough quality for every piece that we would need to. So we do have to kind of spread our nets in that way and, and use a lot of vendors. 
who are very talented. Um, but we, our team, our onset team is about seven usually, uh, more on bigger days with big, you know, big scenes. And there were certain times where we would have uh, 35 or so, I think, if I'm not mistaken, A-list actors working on one day. Wow. And so you could imagine our, our kit of director's chairs was larger than you would ever <laughs> imagine. And so that takes like a person all day to manage the chairs for 35 A-list actors. You know what I mean? So, um, and, and obviously everyone's team was big. So there was a large number of producers and they all need director's chairs and, and there was two directors. So they need director's chairs. So just, I mean, our team was big. It, it, it was big. Um, but I think we would run with about seven people and, and I, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back, but it's seven of the best prop people in the entire industry it took to do this. My father was the prop master. Uh, Jim Stubblefield is the second, who also is a prop master. <laughs> and then uh, you have me as the third. I don't do it much just because we have such a strong team, but I, I guess you would also consider me a prop master by definition. So your top three guys are all prop masters, which usually wouldn't fall within a budgetary sense if that kind of lays out how strong the team was. Um, and so our, our fourth guy is uh, Fred the Fixer. And, and I don't think we would be able to survive without him, to be quite honest, because you can imagine um, with all these different props and even the Infinity Gauntlet uh, at times would would uh, fall apart, just his overuse, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this guy can fix anything. He has a, a giant toolkit that we push around, hundreds and hundreds of pounds, and he has some of the most intricate tools. He's a jeweler all the way up to, you know, he, uh, a metalsmith and he could like weld things. He, he can do electronics, he can do anything. And so he's a real big support. And then um, there was also some other, you know, kind of smaller supporting team that handles things like bringing some of our props to, uh, to get scanned for the visual effects department, uh, managing the director's chairs, like I was saying, or anything else like uh, with 35 actors, sometimes, um, an actor or two would walk off with a prop and go back to base camp. Uh, we have, you know, actors that we call runners, right? As soon as they say cut, they run. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. So, so the, you know, we had people that would go back to base camp and track down our stuff so that we were ready for the next shot and, and things like that as well. So, but yeah, at the, at the top, we have three prop masters, if you will. And then Fred, the fixer, uh, and those are our top four. And then we had a big supporting team as well. I can imagine now, you know, as folks who have been listening to this series are aware, it's not just the infinity gauntlet uh, that falls under props, but even the small things like rings or uh, glasses or all these other sort of accoutrements that people have, people don't think about, but yeah, they can leave set and then they don't have it the next scene they're in. Yeah. Yeah. The way I explain it to the lay person is if you can think of anything that would be touched in a movie, that's my department. And, and so your eyes or your brain might like not be able to wrap around that, but it, get, it does get really detailed. Wedding rings, like so say an actor comes to set with their own wedding ring on and they're not supposed to be married. Then, then I'm, I'm responsible for their personal wedding ring, you know, things yeah. like that. Uh, but sunglasses, watches, cell phones, computers, weapons, guns, uh, or fictitious weapons like the Captain America shield or Thor's hammer or Stormbreaker. And then uh, also... Groot and Rocket or oh. the maquettes are our responsibility. So we do reference passes and lighting reference passes with the visual effects department. And so we manage uh, mostly more when it was baby Groot. Um, we had little little baby Groot maquettes and we had uh, Rocket Raccoon maquettes so that the visual effects department and editorial can all get good solid lighting references of what 
a raccoon or a little mini tree would look like in in uh, in our lighting setup. You know, that's a good segue. Let's talk more about how your what you're doing in props interacts with the folks who are responsible for either visual effects with what's going to be you know post production digital or special effects folks that actually mechanically has to happen on set. Yeah, uh, we're very tied together with visual effects. Uh, every single day, all day long, I'm with a team of what they call data wranglers for visual effects. Um, these are people that are taking all of the data of what's happening in, on the ground in the real world while there's a whole team of people creating a digital world. Um, so these data wranglers are collecting data on our props. They're collecting data of camera positions. They're collecting data of light positions and on and on and on and on. I mean, like their job is so difficult. I, I, I am always astounded working with them each day. But <laughs> so what we'll do more specifically uh, with our department is we will, uh, we had a gauntlet for Josh Brolin. That's a Josh Brolin sized gauntlet that he could wear. Uh, for his acting to understand and to feel what it would feel like to have this kind of powerful piece of armor on his hand. And then we had a Thanos size because Thanos and Josh Brolin are not the same size person. <laughs> right. And, and so um, I would give uh, Josh his gauntlet and he would do the scene with it. And as soon as they say cut, Josh walks off um, and he actually liked to wear the gauntlet all day. So we wouldn't take it from him. He, it was kind of method in that way. Okay. Uh, he liked to feel it. And, and then I would run in with the Thanos size gauntlet, which, which is incredibly heavy. It was real armor made from a blacksmith. Uh, and it had a light element in it. It had all the infinity stones in it. And depending on the scene, it wouldn't have all the infinity stones in it because he kind of gathered them along the way. That's right. You have to keep um, track of continuity very closely yes, for the yes, gauntlet. Right. What, exactly. what, what version of the gauntlet actually works this scene? Yeah, exactly. What stones are in there? What aren't? Has he, re has he got the power stone yet? Or does he have the time stone yet? Or, or you know, what, what's happening and when? And so I had to make sure that the continuity of the gauntlet was correct. And then I run in. And they, um, they do what, what's called balls and charts, which is like a spherical ball to capture more data on, on the lighting setup and the, and the camera positions. And then I do the reference pass of the Infinity Gauntlet. And if Rocket was there, I would also do Rocket. And if, if Groot was there, we would do Groot. And, and any of like the, um, they called the Black Order, any of Thanos' cronies were there because those were all digital characters as well. Mm. Um, they, they would come in with big maquettes uh, from a different department uh, called Legacy who, who created some character maquettes uh, for all of the Black Order as well. And then, uh, gosh, what else would we do? <laughs> Man, it goes on and on. But, uh, but uh, we, we would just do reference passes every single take, and every single take. Tell me a little bit more about the maquette and what you have to do for reference pass, just to have a better understanding of how the digital yeah, works. Yeah, so I, I would walk in front of the camera. So I'm on camera at that point, and I walk in with Rocket, and the camera department duplicates the move that they just made in the scene, and the lighting department duplicates the lighting that they just did in the scene. And obviously, we do it after every time because everyone's versed on what they just did. And so it's the easiest way to do it. And then I walk through and duplicate like, where, did walk, where did Rocket walk to? Where did he jump? Was he on the table? Was he on this chair? Did he come from here and go to there? Uh, almost kind of like puppeteering him a little bit uh, mm -hmm. through 
what he did. And, and so, but I would do the same thing, not just with Rocket, but Captain America's shield or Thor's hammer or, or uh, Stormbreaker or the gauntlet or whatever. And so we kind of walk through the set and the lighting setup in front of camera while rolling uh, for more data to send over to the people creating the digital environment. And is that one pass per item? In other words, if you did something with Captain American Shield, could you, well, I'm assuming the hammer probably didn't follow the same path. So you would have to, right. could somebody else carry it separately right. or do you have to do it just one time for each thing? Yeah, no, the, it, the team of us would run in to try and expedite, you know, for, okay. for time purposes. Yeah. Uh, on a film like this, they knew how much environment was going to be created digitally. So they took the time to do it. But on a lot of films, the visual effects department has to fight for things like this because it does take a lot of time. And so it's interesting to me now, even, even doing films after Infinity War and Endgame, how hard the visual effects departments have to fight. It was like a little bit of shock to me because I'm coming off of a two-year stint of we're doing reference and balls and charts every single time. So I'm used to it every time. I'm ready to go. I know the timing of it. I know how to expedite the timing of it. I'm very, very good at it. I've done it like, I don't know, thousands and thousands of times. Right. Um, so I'm confident we can do it quickly. And then I'm working with directors now that are like, why are we doing this? This is taking too long. You're, you're taking the time out of my day. And visual effects is going, please, we're going to make your film better. You know, <laughs> so they have to fight. But on this one, it was quite nice, actually. It was just expected. And what about special effects? So if they're divided, I'm thinking as one example, um, Captain America in that battle at the end of the first film, he has a shield that expands, I think, as he uses it as a weapon. Or do those sort of things happen mechanically? Is special effects involved in that? Or is it just a very specialized prop? In that case, no. It was a very specialized prop. And a lot of things, sometimes, especially working with Marvel, we don't get too upset. We're a big part of developing these props uh, mm -hmm. during during the preparatory phases. So there's visual development meetings uh, where we have 3D illustrators and illustrators conceptualizing all the props that we manufacture. But we know even from the beginning that the development of those pieces goes on well after we're done filming. And so in the case of that shield, we knew it was not done being developed, though we did have a prop there for the actor um, it didn't look or work a lot like the end product. That was all a visual effect. And it was not a special effect, no. Oh, I see, but, I see. Yeah, but we do. We do at times. Special effects gets involved with our props, especially breakaways. You know, if something breaks, special effects will, will help us with that. And they'll be there with us if, if something explodes or if something more on other films. Do we work closely with special effects, more traditional stuff? Uh, if something blows up or things like that. Uh, but on Marvel, it, you know, it ends up being a lot of visual effects because, you know, they're creating most of the characters digitally anyway. So it makes sense. So that there's, it's almost as a subset of the work they're doing when they're so involved in every scene and with so many actual characters that, uh, yeah, that's actually somewhat simpler to do it by visual effects rather than special effects, I would think. In some yeah. of these cases. Yeah. And, and more cost effective. Like they run that, they, they, they cost analyze everything we do. So there's certain props where they'll just say, no, don't build it. We don't need a reference of it. It'll be more to build it than it would be to build it digitally. Like uh, Thanos' double-edged blade, for example, that he uses, uh, I think, at the end of Endgame. That was a piece that I think, uh, I think Marvel and, and Ryan Minerdink and, and the guys, I think they developed it at corporate. 
and it was something that went through a few meetings. Are we going to build the reference of this? Are, are we not? It, it's unwieldy because the guy's eight feet tall. Right. So like it, it, it's huge. It would be expensive to build. And I think they went ahead and said, no, you're not going to build a practical one of that. and don't need to. We'll just build it digitally. So that's just one quick little story uh, that kind of explains everything's run through a cost analysis. Is this going to save us money to have this every day and be able to do a reference of it? Or is it going to be easier just to build it digitally? Well, when you reference like a, a Josh Brolin sized infinity glove, was right. there a Josh Brolin sized axe or weapon that he was holding for those scenes or how, how does he make that transition? Yeah. So this is a whole nother, this is a whole nother different part of our job. It's going to be mind expanding. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there's a whole motion capture portion of it. And so I don't know. I mean, I I guess if you don't know what motion capture is, it's like, it would be, you may have seen these guys wearing like old little pajamas with like little blinky lights and tracking markers all over them. Uh, so every digital character, it has a motion capture suit on and all around the set is towers that are capturing their motion. And so we do have motion capture, what we call mocap props that are the same scale and size to the human that they can use and hold and there's motion capture tracking markers on them, but they're not a fully developed prop at all. So usually they're made out of like what you would think of like a yoga block foam or just like a block of foam that are cut out into the shape of and or like, you know, like Thanos's blade was cut inch and a half foam mm-hmm. into the shape of it and uh, an aluminum armature with some tennis racket grip around it uh-huh. uh, that, that he could use while doing his fights or whatever. Well, taking a step back from the actual props, and we're going we're gonna to nerd out on that in just a minute, but uh, <laughs> as far as keeping track of all of it, what sort of special systems or just, it just, just seems like at a scale of prop that I'm not going to say unprecedented, you've been doing it a long time, but it's enormous to keep track of all of this. <laughs> yeah. It's my responsibility to have it in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, but it's not, it's kind of old school. There Mm -hmm. are new softwares and things that exist that, that, that I think some of the younger generations try to use. But for us, we've been doing it so long. There's a system, you know, there's a system that we use and we use it all the time uh, of tracking. So it goes by character. And then there's big set boxes that we create that have certain characters stuff in it. And then there's multiple 50 foot trucks full of stuff just in case a director says, Hey, I need a number two pencil or an umbrella or just random stuff that comes up. And uh, as a young, young kid, even as young as five or six or seven years old, Mm -hmm. my dad would uh, bring me to set and throw me on the truck and say, unpack every box and repack it. (laughs) Organize every box. And so, I don't know, 32 years later, I've unpacked and repacked every single box on every single truck. And and a big part of our prep will be my bosses saying, hey, Travis, pack all the set carts. Pack every box for every hero character and every hero bag, every small bag with rings and watches and cell phones, and pack it all up and touch every single piece of it. And so through my entire life, I've literally put hands on every single prop. And therefore, when a boss or when I call for a prop 
from one of our team and say, hey, I need Thanos's, I need Brolin's gauntlet and say it's a new guy who's helping us for the day. Mm-hmm. I can say it's in this cart on the left-hand side in this box inside of this Pelican case and grab the leather glove that goes inside so it doesn't hurt his hand. Wow. And so it, it's funny, but not funny and kind of crazy, but I have the inventory inside of my head. Now, once we've wrapped, we do have an, in, an organized inventory process that involves like, you know, PowerPoint and, and we box everything up and we take photographs and we inventory everything and then we send it off to Marvel's asset warehouse and they mm-hmm. do have, a, they have like a barcoding system, I think also with that. Like if I have to recall a prop that say we've moved on to another film, but Thor's in it and I say, okay, we need the um, Thor to Mjolnir. I know that we have 17 of those and I don't need to go into this, the, the scanning system. And sometimes they'll say, no, you don't have it right. Our, our inventory says we only have 15. And I say, no, there's 17 open the box, you know? So it's all funny enough. It's all in my head. Well, with all of that in your head, is there still room for regular props? Not obviously in the sense of uh, execution on set, but do they have you or other folks focused on just the specialty items? And then do you have another team dealing with, like you said, like weapons or the sort of just the things that become more normal, if you will? Or does that all just sort of work into the same process for you? Um, It's broken down slightly differently. Uh, It's less small props, big props, or specialty props, and it's more mm-hmm. character-based. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll run the set with the hero characters. So I'll be there with Cap and with Thor and, and with Thanos. And then, you know, the, the background or the supporting cast will be handled by another person. And so the load is more split up that way rather than, you know, specialty props and, and what you would call traditional or, you know, regular hand props. Got it. Um, it it's character. It's broken down by character. So I'll have a specific set of characters um, like my boss or my dad uh, has a really strong relationship with Robert Downey since Iron Man 1. They've become kind of buds. That's mm-hmm. his character. Okay. Nobody really messes with his character. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, unless he's super busy and he's not there. And then I'll fall in with Robert because I was there on Iron Man 1 also. So, the, you know, the relationship is there. But uh, it's more, more down to whose characters are whose. Got it. Let's talk about some of these specific props. You mentioned the Infinity Gauntlet. There are a couple of versions of this. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about all of the Infinity Gauntlet work. As it carries through the movie, we get several different versions of it. Um, I know there's a Hulk version later on. Oh, by the way, we should probably say there will be spoilers. If someone <laughs> happens to be listening to this and hasn't actually seen the movies, you, you should go watch them as well. Yeah, um, but, yeah. so, so, but let's talk more about the Gauntlet itself, about what was involved. Okay. It was made by a longtime vendor of ours uh, who is a blacksmith. So anytime we need armor or any really amazing, intricate, metal work this dude's like a real real blacksmith i think he even travels around and and he might make armor for um what is that called uh when you go out to dinner oh, oh medieval uh when yeah, medieval uh, times medieval you know times, like, right. like he makes the armor for them you okay. know <laughs> so he's a he's a cool guy he made us three real gauntlets two that were thanos sized because we had first and second units working all the time and oh, really, right had first and second units and then splinter units off of those two units. So we would sometimes be running four or five units at once. And so we had two full-size Thanos gauntlets. And then we had one Josh Brolin gauntlet because there's only one Josh Brolin. So if he was with second unit, his gauntlet would be with 
with second unit and with him and uh they were all beautiful and working and and lighted on the inside i don't know if brolin's was lighted because it was more just for him okay they all had the ability to interchange all of the stones depending on what the scene was fred the fixer would always kind of prep it and make sure all the stones were right and all the stones were in the right place and that the lights were on and working it was lit by led underneath the thanos gauntlet i would put it at 40 pounds. Wow. Really heavy. Uh, I would hold it a large portion of the day. It would make marks and bruises on my hand. It, it, it was, uh, it was tough. It was a, it was a tough one. Uh, the gauntlet, it was famous, you know? And mm-hmm. so I would have people around all the time. Like, can I hold it? Can I touch it? And things like that. And obviously there's specific rules surrounding that because each gauntlet was very, very expensive. Um, so I would have to manage relationships in that way. Even certain higher ups, I had to be like, look, uh, I'm about to do, go, go do a reference pass. So I can't really let you play with this right now. You know? right. So, so it's a, it's a really interesting thing, but the, the terrain of the sets were very difficult also, uh, being on different planets, the, the ground was never flat and I'm carrying heavy metal around and I'm usually not moving slowly because there was a ton of work to do and, not a lot of time to do it, even though we were there for years. There was still, you know, there was still a schedule and we still had to stick to it. Right. I was usually moving pretty quickly over rough terrain with really heavy stuff, especially the gauntlet. Well, since you've described um, tracking props by character, maybe we'll try talking about their props by character as well. Okay. Maybe some of, uh, let's start with Iron Man. As you said, you've had a relationship with him from the beginning. Right. What's uh, unique or special about his props? Interestingly enough, I don't know how this happened. We don't make Iron Man's suit. That's legacy, which okay. we talked about before. However, the arc reactor, which we call the RT, repulsor technology, mm-hmm. uh, that goes in his chest, we did develop that. And that is our prop and has been ever since the first one all the way up through Infinity War and Endgame. Um, the, the arc reactor on his chest is us. So that's the most exciting one. I think uh, I have a little bit more to talk about with, with Iron Man and Tony Stark, but, but that's the big one, you know, like that's the one that everybody knows. And, um, and we were the first ones to kind of start working with early on LEDs before LEDs were really a a big thing. Mm -hmm. We were like, Oh, there's these new lights that are small and they don't get hot and we can put it on his chest. And, and that was also before a lot of the very small remote control technologies were even out. And so we kind of created the first kind of cool prop with LEDs and remote controls um, because battery life was a big issue in the early stages on Iron Man 1. There were big batteries and they didn't last very long. Um, And now it's all one tiny little remote and one tiny little RT that does have a, it has a negative of Robert's chest. Um, So we glue it on every day with the makeup team since we now leave the plate that glues onto his chest all day because he used to have to tear it off after every take so we can Mm -hmm. put new batteries in and things like that now we have a plate that just mounts into his chest and then the rest is the electronics and the lights and the batteries if ever we have to change anything um, just magnets on to the plate so we can take it on and off of them with a little key that says rt on it and and we can take that on and off them uh throughout the day so it doesn't bother him it's not heavy and then it's not tearing up his skin all day by taking the glue on and off and things like that. But that's the big, our favorite one is the RT because we kind of developed that in the early stages and it, it stayed ours throughout the time. 
And so, and the design has changed over the movies, right? Into the end, but, um, but the, and you've taken the opportunity to sounds like improve the technology and the process for getting it in and out of the scenes. Absolutely. Lots of R and D. Um, and, and yeah, a lot of the, the design of it comes from two or three different areas it comes from Marvel corporate because it has to line up with what they call the fanboys, and, and it has to line up with the comics and so that's a part of the design. And then Robert actually has a big say in the design, Robert Downey. Uh, mm-hmm. And then our team, along with like those visual, visual development meetings with corporate. Uh, so my boss will go and meet with Robert at his house at times or at an office, at our office, at, at um, our production office and say, here's the new design. What do you think? And he'll tweak it a little bit. And a lot of times it has to do with shapes and and good luck and feelings and vibes that he has you know he's right. a pretty cool dude he's got some interesting uh interesting i don't know how to say it but anyway he's he's a cool guy he has a lot of input and, and he i don't know you might call it maybe even superstition you know he's okay. like i want you know these to be prisms or triangles now because triangles are good luck or something like that so um it, it's not as crazy as superstition but he's got he's got cool vibes and he always he always wants input and he's a really cool guy so um, I think over the years, corporate allows him that, that input into his props and stuff. That makes sense. Now, speaking of Iron Man, there's several scenes in the movie where he's holding a helmet or like I know in the beginning when he's in the beginning of the first movie, he's using it to, to leave his messages. There are other times where I think he's holding it as well. Specialized props just for those scenes of the helmet or is there some sort of reference on that? How does that work for Iron Man? Um, so the, the, like I said, the suit is made by Legacy and that includes the helmet. Okay. So that's theirs. Okay. Yep. That's theirs. And, and it's real and it's there and they make it. It's beautiful. It's absolutely amazing. The paint jobs on them, the, the materials used, they're, they're really top notch. And so they then will keep track of um, whatever the helmet's supposed to look like for that scene. They will in parallel with you do the sort of design or development around that to have it ready for when right. it's needed. Right. Got it. And, and even, you know, the suit parts that they make or that he wears that have the RT in it, have to be in parallel with what we make as well. So we make the one that goes on his body, okay. like when it's under his shirt or sticking out of his shirt, and they make the one that's in the suit. And so there's a lot of um, coordination there as well. What other uh, props around um, Robert Downey Jr., the Iron Man character, strike you as Well, memorable? I mean, he's a billionaire, right? Uh-huh. So all of his sunglasses, all of his watches, all everything is so cool. And I, like, at any given time, I have this this white, banker's box that says Tony Stark on it and it holds his glasses and his watches and all you know and like every different outfit has a different watch and a different set of sunglasses and none of them are low end okay and so I I at times have this little white banker's box that says Tony Stark on it that's locked into a lock box on the set that obviously is under lock and key at all times also probably one of the most beat up looking set boxes you've ever seen to kind of distract people says background props on it oh interesting you know it's like a misdirect misdirection if you will right right Um, and this little white banker's box probably has 400 to 800 thousand dollars worth of jewelry and sunglasses and watches in it at any given time you know because we have doubles of things and companies love when when he wears their watch or he they love when he wears their sunglasses so these are all promotional items that are sometimes hand flown from Switzerland by the, the marketing director of a company or 
whatever and and we'll go and do lunch with them and we have to sit down and they they are all wearing watches that range from 50 to three million dollars each and they uber over to our <laughs> office you know with three million dollars of watches on their wrist and two watches worth 300 grand in their pocket and um and they they deliver them to us and i have a whole box full of stuff like that it's <laughs> oh, wow. crazy yeah, as far as keeping and track so, yeah and so when i have to go dress robert you know i'm walking up to him with a hundred thousand dollar watch and people are just like oh that's a cool watch i'm like yeah yeah it is <laughs> you know now i did notice a scene with him at the beginning of the first movie where his phone is like a flip phone though and it yes. struck me as a little um i can i don't wonder if it's an intentional disconnect with the technology of his suit that he's using this flip phone but maybe you have thoughts about that as well so that's a really specific callback to the movie Civil War. It was a burner phone that Steve Rogers gave him in case he ever needed to contact him. So it was a very specific phone that was in continuity from Civil War. Good memory on that. But of course, that's why it's in your head, Travis. I, uh, <laughs> I only watched the two movies before we sat down. <laughs> I forgot that I would have to go back to watch them all to really be prepared for this yeah, one. So yeah, good, yeah. good point on that one. <laughs> Everything in the MCU is connected. Everything in Marvel's <laughs> universe is connected. It's really, really cool. Well, let's follow that thread then into another character. Let's talk about Captain America's props. So uh, Steve Rogers, I think by far the, the most famous prop potentially of all times. I, I, I hate to throw that out there, but it very well may be. I mean, I see the t-shirt every day you know, <laughs> uh, Captain America's shield. And it has been through many different iterations, uh, different colors, different sizes. It's another thing where throughout the years, we've, we've been able to research and develop and create better and better looking shields. Everything we do with the shield is, is very specific. Uh, we never throw it. It never touches the ground. It only goes from a prop person into one other person's hand. Nobody else ever hands it off to another person. It is a character of its own, really. It wow, really, yeah. really is. Infancy, it weighed 15.8 pounds, which you would think, oh, that's not too heavy. But um, the poor actors that have to hold that all day for 15 hours, it gets heavy fast. It really does. And, um, and our, our newest shield that was for infinity oh well that wasn't for infinity war but it was for Endgame. was uh 7.4 pounds so we were able over time to cut the weight in half uh we have real metal ones we have rubbers we have fiberglass uh all for different uses mm -hmm. we have backpack shields we have stunt handled shields and we have you know the full hero metal shield as well uh, there are hundreds of Captain America shields because a Captain America shield, a Captain America shield's life expectancy is three scenes. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, because it, it will get scratched or damaged beyond repair. And then we might reuse that damaged shield because of continuity. Uh, but also it's a magic shield. So after a battle, you'll notice it's brand new and, and clean again. But there's times where, like when Black Panther scratched it in Civil War and, and things like that. So there's different, you know, there's different iterations of the shield. And so there's hundreds and hundreds of them in inventory at Marvel. Uh, and sometimes they auction them off for charity and things like that. But yeah, when we have Cap in a movie, we have to call the warehouse and say, send us all the shields. 
And in the case of Endgame, there was some time travel. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And so we had to do callbacks, like which shield was this when we're going back to New York 2012 and make sure that he had the right shield in his hands and he had the right Captain America suit on. That was costumes, obviously, but but these were things that we had to think about and pull out of inventory in order to make sure that we were covered for anything. You know, there's a scene in this one where he's fighting Thanos at the end and the mm -hmm. shield breaks. Did you need to have a broken shield or was visual effects stepping in on that? Uh, no, we have, we have broken shields and mm -hmm. then we have broken shield parts that came off of the shield that fit in like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we did, um, we did do reference passes with all three parts so that they could, three or four parts, something like that, so that visual effects could see kind of how it broke and how everything fits together we would do different passes of the scene as well. One where he would have the full shield and, and they would go through it with, um, with Brolin and, and a lot, a lot of that portion of the fight became stunts. You know, he was swinging that big, even though it was a mocap rubber blade, he was swinging it pretty hard at him. So, you know, they keep the actor safe, obviously. Um, yes. But so there was different passes where it was a full shield and then a half shield and then I would come in and do reference passes every single time. Because a lot of times also, if stunts are using it, it's a rubber shield, which doesn't have the best sheen and shine because it's not real metal. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, we're doing a reference pass every time of the real shield. Now, what about, while we're talking about the big three, let's move on to Thor. Okay. He's got hammers. Hammers is probably the biggest thing for Thor. Let's start yeah. with those. Yeah, well, I mean, as we move on, it's a good segue, I guess, is Captain America picks up Mjolnir, one of That's Thor's hammers. Uh, in Endgame, and that was just a huge, oh my gosh, the security surrounding that event was insane. It was a locked down set. Nobody knew. I mean, obviously we knew because we had to be there with it, uh, but I still smile about it. It was a big moment on set. It was a big moment in, you know, when we went and watched the, you know, the cast and crew screening or the premiere. It was, oh man, what a cool thing that, that, that was a payoff. What was it from... Avengers one maybe where he was able to you know Steve Rogers was able to budget while they were all in Avengers compound or, or Stark's penthouse or something you know kind of scared Thor a little bit and then and the payoff was many films later uh, where he's able to use it and try and help Thor out so that's the one cool thing uh, Mjolnir was developed by by Russell my dad and my boss um, at the very beginning stages and it's amazing again just like the the shield we have rubber we have fiberglass we have real metal and then we have the the real metal one that is really 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 heavy for show and tells for events that marvel sends them around to around the world like comic cons uh, and things like that um, and then we also have one that we can bolt into the ground so that if someone really wanted to look like they needed to pick it up and they couldn't uh, then, then we have the ability to make sure that nobody can pick it up. Uh, the 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 real heavy one, it, it's heavy. It's I think it's upwards of sixty pounds of solid metal. It's the most beautiful looking one because it's solid solid metal. It's like what it's supposed to really be, you know, with a leather handle and and everything. Um, but it takes me. I'm a I'm a pretty strong guy. I hold stuff all day and heavy stuff, and it takes me both hands. And, and a lot of force to pick it up. And I don't want to hold it for very long. It's really, really crazy. And then you have Stormbreaker, which is Thor's new uh, weapon that was created by Itri, the 
dwarf who's 14 feet tall <laughs> uh, paid, played by peter dinklage amazing dude amazing mm-hmm. actor really cool guy uh, that was another very difficult visual effect day because you have someone who in real life is not 14 feet tall doing a scene with people who are you know average height and and he's actually supposed to be 14 feet tall so part of what we do is all the oversized characters uh, have eyeline poles or eyeline backpacks that they wear so thanos we created a backpack with a set of leds that are eight foot in the air oh wow and so we measure, you know, shoulder height to Brolin and then we throw his backpack on and we have like poles that stick up and then there's like little LED eyeballs that the other actors can look at. Same with um, a lot of the Black Order, a lot of Thanos's cronies there, I think um, Cole Obsidian, he was 10 feet tall. Um, and so you'd see actors walking around the set with these big backpacks on with eyeline poles. Uh, but anyway, uh, sorry, back to... Uh, Stormbreaker. Well, let me add, but so Travis, are you guys responsible for those backpacks as well? Is that part of their yep. prop kit, the backpack I, to go on? I made them personally. I, I did the electronics, I ran the, the wires. Um, they're all adjustable too, because sometimes if an actor's sitting down or if they're standing in a different area, visual effects might come up and say, hey, uh, we know you're at eight foot exactly to his eyeballs, but we want to the top of his head. Um, so they're all adjustable. They're all wired. They are, everything, uh, yeah, you can turn them on and off to save batteries. I put them on and take them off the actors every time. Uh, and yes, we manage those all throughout the film. There was uh, Z-racks, they call them, or wardrobe racks, full of them, full mm. of them, because we had two units, splinter units. And then there was stand-in ones as well, because the stand-ins needed to be that tall. So if you throw a normal size stand-in, in when they're setting up a shot, the camera guys are going to frame around the stand-in and the stand-in's not eight feet tall. So there were stand-in backpacks, which had pictures of the characters on them, which became a security problem sometimes when we were out in public. Mm. So we had to sometimes cover the pictures of them, even though they wanted them most of the time. So it gets pretty crazy. But yeah, we were responsible for all of those, uh, all those backpacks. Well, I took you aside. You're going to tell us more about Stormbreaker, which is the sure, new weapon he gets in. It has... The handle is wood because it's supposed to be part of Groot, if I remember correctly. Right, right, right. So, yeah, the head uh, was made by Itri, uh, the special blacksmith that uses a sun in outer space to make it. And then Groot comes in and kind of sacrifices himself a little bit to create the handle of it. It is, as a prop, one of the most difficult to handle. I know we've talked about some heavy stuff already, like the Infinity Gauntlet and, and Thor's Mjolnir, but uh, Chris Hemsworth is such a tall guy that the proportion of this weapon is, is very big. It's actually really big. Uh, if sitting on the ground, I think I'm five foot 10. If sitting on the ground, it almost I mean, it comes up to my collarbones if it was sitting on the ground. Uh, it's very, very heavy and very sharp. Uh, it sent one of our guys to an orthopedist while doing a reference pass. He he tore something in his arm. Wow! And uh, again, we we the specialty props were not allowed to put on the ground ever. And so when holding it and being prepared for a reference pass, I would put it over my shoulder, and at the end of the day, my my traps would be bruised, black and blue. And um, it's so sharp that one time it just grazed my calf and, and cut me open really bad. I mean, I didn't have to get stitches, but it was just barely grazed me. It tore, tore my pants, tore my clothes, uh, really unwieldy. 
Chris Hemsworth is actually what you would think of like the real life specimen. He's like the real Thor. I mean, like, I don't want to call him typecast, but <laughs> the dude's amazing. And, uh-huh. and there was one scene where we wanted to use the real one for, for the best use in the film and the best use of light. And we asked him, hey, dude, you're supposed to lift this up with one hand. We have rubber. We have fiberglass. They're lighter. But it would really be good if you could lift up this real one. <laughs> and I'll tell you, like I said, I'm strong. There's no way I could lift this with one hand. And he did it. He did it <laughs> in the scene. Uh-huh. I mean, he obviously works out all the time. He's a big, strong, good-looking dude. Everybody loves him. Really nice guy. And he did it. He lifted that thing up in the air. I don't even know if it, that ended up in the final cut. Uh-huh. just for for time but he did it and it was really amazing it was a powerful moment on set as well <laughs> i bet i bet so there's a scene where he gets a new eyeball was the eyeball prop you guys had to research ahead of time is that or just coordinate specifics about it or do you guys have a box of eyeballs you just choose the one you want we do have eyeballs yes we do carry <laughs> eyeballs um in this case it was a cybernetic eye i think they called it which we had done a little work with before in the guardians of the galaxy world mm-hmm uh, with Rocket, I think he, or Rocket or Groot or someone stole someone's eye in Guardians 2 or Guardians 1, something like that. That was, part I do remember. I think, uh, yeah, uh, Rocket had stolen it from someone else. And so. Exactly. I, and I don't know that it was supposed to be the same eye or not. It might have been. Uh, but we played in the cybernetic eye world and it was mostly a reference pass. Uh, and I don't know... Uh, we made something that looked cool that had some wires on welded onto it or, or soldered onto it and things like that. So we manufactured it and it was a reference pass. I don't know how accurate it uh, was in the film to what we had manufactured, but we mm. made a cool reference pass of it. Well, moving from there, let's talk about the Space Guardians, maybe talk about them as a group. You talked about Baby Group particularly or Rocket actually themselves having to go through as um, as props. What about the other kind of weapons and things they've had? We've got knives, we've got guns, they've got those special blasters that uh, Star Lord had. Yep, yep. I think they're some of my favorite characters. I, you know, I worked with them on Guardians 2. Pratt, great guy, Star Lord, <laughs> Chris Pratt. He's like a really cool dude, down to earth. Just your average guy on set is really cool, but obviously an amazing actor and a, a big star these days. His props. The blasters have something really cool and specific. His holsters for his blasters are very, very custom. And we develop the holsters and we work in coordination with the costumes department to adhere the holsters into his pants. And at times we have to take them off if there's a stunt or anything that would, you know, it might hurt him if he landed on them. Uh, We take them off, but it's two little prongs that come out and hold the the blasters very specifically. And then um, if he's doing any running or, or, any action I have to pin them in so I I spend a lot of time down at Chris Pratt's waist you know like I'm putting his blasters on pushing the pins in and I have to do and and sometimes he has to run and then he has to draw them so he has to pull the pins out himself without looking and then draw his weapons so um, I work really closely with him Uh, Gamora played by Zoe Saldana really cool girl she has a beautiful sword that that retracts and goes into a holster as well so there's a few different, we don't have any retractable swords. That's a visual effect part of it. But we have short swords that are in her holster that sometimes she uses and holds. And then we have long swords when, you know, it's, it's fully extended. Beautiful piece of metal. Really, really is. But just like everything else, we have metal ones, rubber, fiberglass for all the different uses. 
Uh, what else? Oh, Drax's knives. Those are beautiful pieces as well. Uh, there's a quick story. It's funny. Dra- uh, Dave Bautista plays Drax, uh, former wrestler, really big dude, really big, really buff, very intimidating guy, big teddy bear of a person, really, really nice. Uh, maybe one of the nicest people I've ever met, really. I mean, he's like super sweet guy. But you look at him, super intimidating. Early on, I put his knives in his boot holsters. So there's like these little sheaths in his boots that are built in. Again, another coordination with the costumes department. And he told me a little story early on. I think he was giving me a compliment because I was always quick. I was there with them and, and they were in and in the place the way they needed to be. But he told me this story. They made Guardians 1 in, in London. And whoever the, the, the props assistant was there, more than once missed the sheath in the boot oh, and no. stabbed him oh, in the God. leg <laughs> with these beautiful, <laughs> like very sharp, very big knives. And I was like, I didn't know if he was trying to threaten me or something or because I was early on in the film, but it was a funny story. I'm like, well, I'm glad I haven't stabbed you. And I, I, I promise not to, you know, I'll be diligent in, in not stabbing you, but it turns out he's he's a he's a good buddy and, and a, a good guy all through and through. And I, I I managed to never stab him in the leg through Guardians Two and all of all of uh, Endgame and Infinity War. <laughs> I think I, I made it out okay. <laughs> well, coming uh, back. Who else? Oh, sorry, you got more to say on those guys? Yeah, that's. Well, I mean, it's... I mean, Rocket and Groot. We talked about a little bit. Uh, there's a gentleman, Sean Gunn, uh, who plays a few different characters. He plays Kraglin in in Guardians. And he played Kraglin in Endgame as well. He was part of the Ravagers that came in at the end. He is also actually acts as the onset rocket. And Guy has the most open hips of anyone in the entire world. He actually like walks in a squat at Rocket's height for eyeline and reads all his lines on set. And then Bradley Cooper obviously is the voice of Rocket. And so that's ADR after the film or for a few days or whatever, just like uh, Vin Diesel is Groot. They're not there all day, all the time, you know, doing the voices on set. There's, there's other actors that, that kind of do that or just kind of read the lines for the other actors. Um, but Sean is really cool guy. He's the brother of James Gunn, who's the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and man, is he impressive. He'll, he'll climb, he'll run alongside people in a squat. You know, <laughs> he'll hmm. climb onto a table or a, a bench or like, he's, he's like a real life raccoon. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> he's a really cool guy and a great actor also nonetheless, but I'm trying to think of who else, Michael Rooker, who plays Yondu in, in the guardians of the galaxy a franchise, really nice guy. We have his arrow, which is a beautiful piece. It's a metal arrow with some engraving on it. It's a re- one of my favorites also. Uh, so the Guardians of the Galaxy's props are some of my favorite intricate kind of space-like manufacturers that that we've done. They're really, really cool. Well, bringing it back to Earth, let's uh, talk about Doctor Strange. Uh-huh. Uh, he's got a number of uh, significant props that go through changes in the movie. And I also see a lot of visual effects with these as well. Right. So our main prop with Doctor Strange is the Eye of Agamotto. We have open eyes. We have closed eyes. The big part of the eye... Uh, for us, I mean, the design of the eye is, and and it's beautiful, no doubt. It's actually, in my mind, resembles Yondu's arrow a lot. It's kind of got that bronzy kind of finish, and it's got the engravings on it. It's really beautiful piece. 
that's normal manufacturing stuff for us though, you know, 3D printing and casting and molding and CNC metal machines, all the normal stuff for us. But the not normal part of it is the leather lanyard that it hangs on. There's one woman that can do that. And it's, I think 15, don't quote me on this, but it's somewhere above 10 different types of leather strings leather and different strings and different materials that are hand woven exactly alike for all of our duplicates. And one woman can do it and source the materials and everything. And she just sits there and makes the lanyards. And I think for Endgame infinity war, she just sat there for like three weeks making lanyards 12 hours a day. And, and they're beautiful. Gosh, the detail on them are insane. And it's all just like custom hand woven leather really really cool um some of his other stuff like the sling rings are actually part of the costume because they stay on the costume so the costume department handles that his cape his cape is part of the costume department as well um so the big one for us is the eye of agamotto and the time stone that's in it now when he's doing either putting up shields or using a sword do you have some sort of prop that stands in for that that they're going to make uh the sort of fiery digital thing later or how does that work uh yes uh, different passes again they're called i think rune shields is what we call them i don't know if that's accurate to to the storyline but we call them rune shields and they're little handled lights that emulate that but it's really for the interactive light so it's the light that that you know bounces off of his face or any of the other characters that are standing nearby mm-hmm. um, it's to light their face with what will be the effect that comes in at the end and usually that's uh, a pass without them with the actors and a pass with them with the actors moving on from there let's talk about black widow oh she's got tons of stuff tons and tons of stuff so she has a glock 43s and glock 26s as her guns those are real weapons most of the time Uh, unless they're holstered we use like a rubber or a hard plastic and so yes we do all the gunfire for the films as well. And the reason she uses those particular Glocks is she's a smaller girl and those are smaller Glocks and she handles them well. Boy, can she fire a weapon. Mm-hmm. She's very well trained, very impressive. Uh, she can reload a mag like no other. She's a great, great girl. I, I, I don't know if I can call her, I don't know if she'd call me a friend, but I would call her a friend. Uh, a, a, definitely a good work friend. She's a really nice lady, really good actress. Um, her batons are something that, that we've always worked with. She's, yeah, she's a really cool girl. Her batons are very special and specific. Her most recent batons, I don't know if they got featured as much as we would have wanted to, but they work a lot like, uh, you know, the old slap bracelets mm-hmm. that you would like, you know, it's a, it's a stiff, you know, piece of canvas or whatever, and you slap it around your wrist and it wraps around your wrist. Uh, We had actual practical metal batons that if you hit it on a a pole or somebody's arm, it would wrap around them. And then she could yank or pull or push or, or do whatever um, with them. And, and we made those practically. It's, it's an insane, I loved playing with that. Now, wow. if you tried to do it, it hurt really bad because it was made <laughs> out of metal. Okay. But it worked. You could really, you could actually do it. And those are really, really cool. I don't know if we ever, you know, they got featured in that way. Something that, that maybe nobody ever thinks about and was new to me when we were doing this is 
think the the cast list was somewhere upwards of 150 cast members or something. And wow. you're talking about five something hours of content. And so if you broke down every character's screen time over the five hours with a hundred and something actors, you get, the directors had like under two minutes per character to, to like to establish a character. I mean, it was really insane. They had a hard time. And that's maybe why the films were so long is it was such a, a huge cast that they assembled that they didn't have enough time in the film to, to feature every cool thing that we made or to feature every cool actor that, that was cast and hired and was there. Um, so sadly, a lot of the cool stuff we did just got cut out just because it would otherwise be a 10 hour movie, you know? <laughs> and I think that might be one of them there. We did some cool stuff with her batons, but um, you know, you can't feature everything. What other actors had cool stuff that uh, uh, do you think may have not been featured prominently in the movie? Um, how about Hawkeye? Oh, Hawkeye, he had, yes, Hawkeye we, and he's got his Ronin persona in this, in right. this movie yeah, for a large so this part is of it. Some, yeah, this is something we had a lot of fun with. Sorry, I cut you off a little bit. But uh, Ronin, developing Ronin was really cool. Really, really cool. And one thing that didn't get featured on Ronin is he's got a katana sword, which did get featured. The sheath that was on his back for the katana sword, we made also into a sword. So he could have dueling swords. And so the sheath itself had a, a sharpened edge blade and a handle on it so that he could take the katana out of his sheath on his back and then take the sheath off and he would have dueling katana swords to fight somebody with. And it was really cool. He also had a, a knife in his boot that we made as, uh, as like a stiletto blade, but the blade and the handle itself, I think, was over 12 inches long and it had two ways to engage the blade that were really fun and really cool it was one of my favorite props because it sounded cool uh -huh. but at the, at the butt of the blade he could hit it anywhere on himself or hit his hand on it and it would engage the stiletto and it would it would be like this um shing <laughs> you know what I mean? If I'm like doing a poor job of the sound effect, but, but uh, I would play with that all day just because it sounded so cool. Uh, it was a really neat prop that I don't know if it did or if it didn't get featured, uh, uh, but that Ronan, and then obviously he had a, a new quiver and a new bow that, that was really cool as well um, that we've done, you know, with him all the time. He, as a uh, as a superhero had some of the best poses he had his poses really well down okay. and i remember a vanity fair photo shoot that we were doing one weekend where they were rifling through all the i mean it must have been the biggest photo shoot it was also for publicity for the film and then coinciding with the vanity fair photo shoot because they had to get all these actors there on the same day at the same time and they couldn't do that more than once mm -hmm. and so we had all the actors from the film all there one weekend we worked seven days in a row. You know, we filmed that week and then we, were, we all worked seven days in a row. It was Jeremy Renner doing his photos as Hawkeye. And right behind, next in line, was Chris Pratt for Star-Lord. And Jeremy was doing these amazing, like he had really had his poses down. <laughs> and they looked super cool. He had his bow and he was, you know, he had his bow retracted and he had all these cool poses and his character was really well developed because he had been doing it for so long. And it just so happened that normally 
the actors wouldn't be stacked up in waiting, but it was such a heavy load that I think the ADs brought them over just a little, you know, they brought Pratt a little, little bit early or Renner was going over a few minutes or something like that because everything was looking so good. And so mm-hmm. Pratt was just standing there <laughs> watching him and he was just like, oh man, he was getting really discouraged because it was, everything was so cool. <laughs> he was getting insecure and really discouraged. And he was like, oh God, he's like, how am I going to go? How am I going to follow this? This is like really, really cool stuff. And he even said something to Renner as they were, you know, switching over. And it took a couple minutes for Pratt to snap back into his own character and who Star-Lord is. He's kind of a cooler, funnier kind of guy which isn't Renner's character at all. You know what I mean? And so I think he got, he got overwhelmed and intimidated for, I don't know, five seconds or something, you know, but once he stepped in front of the camera and remembered who his character was, obviously he was Star-Lord and Star-Lord, he did great as Star-Lord. He didn't need to be this cool kind of superhero-y Hawkeye kind of guy. So, uh, but, but yeah, Renner is one of the harder, uh, not Renner himself, but Hawkeye is one of the harder characters that I had because he did have so many props. He had a wrist uh, crossbow. Uh, that goes around his wrist he had his katanas he had his boot knives he had his quiver and his arrows uh what else gosh yeah he was he was he was probably one of my toughest to dress each day as far as it took the longest and and it was all very intricate special stuff now let's talk about the wakanda props did you guys work black panther as well Uh, was that on your list of marvel movies uh black panther was filming at the same time okay as infinity war and oh and oh fascinating okay okay yeah so we weren't able to work on it but we were obviously a big part of developing all the props because it was all happening at the same time got it yeah tell me more Uh, about that uh the real insanity of that is when chadwick boseman t'challa works at black panther on the same day that he works on endgame where are his props and where do they go and how do they get there and how many duplicates do we have? And then, and then let's take it another step. He works on black Panther that day. And then he works on Endgame that day. And then he works on Endgame second unit that day. Wow. I can't imagine keeping track. I mean, well, obviously you do. That's the job, but it's it's our challenge. but, But there's no doubt in my mind that Marvel studios knew that they had assembled the best crew and the best cast to create the best possible movie that they could. And boy, did they challenge us in every way because the same thing was going on with Thor Ragnarok. There was a lot of reshoots and and things going on from Thor Ragnarok that crossed over schedules with Infinity War and Endgame. So the management of the props between three films was absolutely insane. And then there's one next level thing that I would like to touch on is security. Mm, Please. They never gave us a script, ever gave us a script. This is the first time ever that I've never got a script to know what we're shooting or what we're doing or what we're developing or, or anything. And I think my boss had a, a lock and key redacted version of the script, okay. which wow. redacted is, you know, mostly it's blacked out anything that they don't want you to know. Uh-huh. And it will, it didn't have all the pages on it either. And, and only the, 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 department head had one of those a redacted 118 page script that i think eventually went to 130 something pages Uh and it we only had up to 118 and so one day we saw on the schedule okay we're gonna be filming scene uh whatever 123 
they're like, oh, well, my script only goes up to scene uh, 105. So, well, I hope there's no props in it. Let's call production. Hey, uh, so I see we're filming at this location and we're filming this scene. So, uh, can we have some pages to see what's going on there? Oh, we're not doing that. We're not, get, we're not giving out pages for that. Oh, okay. Well, should we bring any props? <laughs> like, I mean, how oh, else would you know? <laughs> like, like do, the, do the actors hold anything or <laughs> they do anything? Does, have, does someone make a phone call or they're like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, huh. All right. Well, well, we'll have someone call you. And so it was just more of a personal phone call to say what we needed. And we, we didn't even know what was happening in the scene. I think also all the actors only got the pages that they were in and not the whole script. And so it was literally, this is what was said to us always was just be ready for anything. And the expectation was there. The, the expectation was there and, and the crew that they hired, not just the prop crew, but everybody, the visual effects department, the camera department, um, you know, the production design and the set design, the ADs, we were all literally just ready for anything. And now that's a very expensive way to operate. Also true. But they put together the right budget to do it because they knew what they wanted to do and they knew they were, they spent the money on it. And, and I think the product portrays that it was a really amazing experience. Everybody was like family. Nobody was cranky. I know a lot of, a lot of times on film sets, you run into cranky people that step on each other's, each other's toes and in the in the long run i think we all knew we had to spend two or almost three years together so nobody you know was mean to each other at the beginning and, and <laughs> right. therefore and therefore like through the end we were all like family i mean it was one of the uh, one of the best i would say the best film experience i've ever had is just the best group of people doing the hardest thing possible and in not ever having a script literally nobody ever got a call sheet Wow. No call sheets. They didn't want anyone to know who's working that day. Really? I mean, wow. Not even, insane. not even a call sheet as far as, no, there was they a just told you what time thread. to show up. They, they, I mean, there was, there was call sheets, but only department heads and very few would get them. And then there would be text threads to say, Hey, show up at work tomorrow at six 30. That's it. <laughs> no, who's working, no advance of what we're doing the next day. No, nothing. Show up and be ready for anything. It was really, really cool. It was really cool. Well, there's a ton of characters we haven't even touched on, but that's probably a good transition to talk about the end of the movie and longer term. What do you see for your future with Marvel? I know they're not slowing down by any means. It's actually quite the opposite with Disney plus coming out. There's a whole new line of what I call kind of hybrids. You know, people are calling it TV, but it's definitely not. It's not TV budget. It's, it's, you know, streaming. I think they're calling it SVOD uh, or something like that, streaming video on demand, mm -hmm. which is kind of this new type of production that, that Amazon and Netflix has already kind of dipped their toes into. But now Marvel Studios and Disney Plus are, are doing that on their own. So that's big and exciting. I'm working on one of those projects right now, and I've worked on some of them during the prep phases. There are a whole new line of features also coming out that I know that we're being requested to work on as well. Uh, so for me, I'm blessed in this industry uh, to have job security beyond any imaginable amount in the film industry. I, I don't know if maybe a lot of your listeners know or not, but 
job security in the film industry is not always the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we're, we're uh, freelance employees. We get hired for one project at a time. And when that project's over, we are unemployed until the next project comes along. And so I can't imagine what would have happened uh, 13 years ago if I would have stayed working on Rush Hour 3 and not transferred over to Iron Man. Um, it would have been a career-changing event had I not come to Iron Man, but uh, I'm very, very blessed and to work for Disney and, and Marvel Studios for so long and to have that kind of success and be working with these kind of successful people is just a real honor. And I'm stoked, super excited to look forward and just see that they have, I mean, off the top of my head, 12 projects ready to go. Wow. Yeah. Well, I want to follow up on something you said earlier in that context, Travis, and that is you spoke about the challenges of having Black Panther filming at the same time as Infinity War and Endgame, and then Thor Ragnarok having reshoots as well. As these TV projects or the streaming videos, you say, ramp up, but they're looking for big budget featured support. But some of these are going to be running simultaneously when the movies start underway again as well. And so from a prop perspective, talking about coordinating in between sets and managing all of this, What's Marvel's vision for managing this going forward? They are hiring a lot of people. <laughs> they really are. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's what's happening is everybody who, it's really a cool you know, paradigm, if that's the word. It's really a cool event that's happening is everybody who has worked with them for a long time is moving up. And there's new types of department heads going on. Like, like my boss was always a prop master and now he's, prop mastering three films, if you will, or, or, or kind of like a head of props at Marvel. And so he kind of vets all the prop masters or all the, who's leading what project. And because mm -hmm. I've worked with him so long, now I'm leading a project. So uh, where I would have been not looking to move up in my department for some time, I was able to much sooner than I might have. Uh, and same with producers, you know, there was these younger kind of associate producers who are now moving up into these executive producer positions, in, you know, in the streaming world, and they're getting to move up and grow with the company. And, and so there's a lot of hiring going on. There's more staff than we've ever had before. My boss is overseeing three films right now and or three SVODs right now. And then already is starting to talk about and prep uh, some of the next projects coming up that I don't know if they've been announced yet. So I can't really Fair talk enough. about we, them, but we, we won't press you on those. Yeah. But they're yeah. franchises. We all know, mm -hmm. you know, the, you know, there's continuations of franchises like black Panther. I know I can say that and, and Dr. Strange. And then there's some that are going to continue that are exciting as well that, that we'll be working on. And it all just comes down to timing of which one I'll be working on. It's which one is starting up when the one I'm on is ending. So uh -huh. that kind of is the only thing that determines what, uh, which project I'll be working on. But uh, I've been told that at best, I'm going to have two weeks off in between each project for the next few years. <laughs> well, well, you enjoy that time off. Uh, we'll look for those opportunities, Travis. And hopefully as these projects develop, you'll come back here and, and tell us about them. It's been a lot of fun talking through this one. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking again. Listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. You can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline1word.biz. That's B-I-Z. I also appreciate your feedback via iTunes, where your ratings and comments really do help us reach new listeners. And Facebook, 
where for your visual entertainment, I post photos and other behind the scene materials at podcast below the line. I should note that Avengers and other set where use of personal cameras is forbidden, so not a lot of background photos to share. You can though follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at pod below the line. Thanks to Curtis five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Thanks for listening. We've got one more prop-focused episode in the series. Join us for that next week. All right, Travis, let's do lightning round on folks we missed. Falcon. Falcon. I'm working very closely with him right now. Um, Really cool person. He's a golf buddy of mine. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about his props at all because I like him so much as a friend. (laughs) Uh, He's just a really fun guy very loud personality steps on set. He was number six on the end game his, you know, cast number on the call sheet. And so right when he walks in the stage door, very first thing he says, number six is right. <laughs> very loud, vibrant personality. Great, great guy. Number six on the call sheet now has his own SVOD show still is number six, even though he's number one on the call sheet. Very interesting. Now I think, I think I know about that show as well. And isn't uh, Winter Soldier on that show as well? Yes, Give yes, Falcon next. and Winter Soldier. Uh, so it's Bucky and, and Falcon. Gosh, both guys, really cool guys. Winter Soldier, one of, one of the coolest characters. He has some cool weapons. He's got the arm, which is not us, uh, but that's also legacy. And uh, really nice guy, Sebastian. I'd call him a friend also. Uh, Ant-Man. Paul Rudd, funniest dude ever. <laughs> gosh is he funny but uh we have to do reference passes of my i think my favorite part of ant-man is we have to do reference passes with an ant-sized paul rudd so we have we have little mini paul rudds that are probably you know the size of your fingertip and and so there's little size references and special cameras that we use when he is an ant and special lenses and uh and things and so we put his little teeny ant self in in the scenes sometimes uh, Spider-Man, who is not full. I mean, the Marvel has him, yes, but it's also not just Disney. But Sony. Sony must have some say about his props and such as well. Exactly. Uh, yes. The backpack, right? He has his backpack and he loses his backpack and Aunt May finds his backpack or gets him a new backpack. His backpack is a big thing. Uh, his suit isn't us. His mask isn't us. So we don't do a lot when he is dressed as Spider-Man. But, but uh, another good golfer. <laughs> another good golfer. Sweet, sweet guy. But, uh, and we don't get to see him too much. I've done some of the reshoots for Spider-Man uh, Homecoming and Far From Home, but I don't get work. I, you know, we didn't get to work with him too, too much on Endgame. He's a, he was an in and out kind of guy, super, super busy. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, he's really successful right now. Um, so his schedule was insane. I think he had told me at one point he hadn't been home in like 45 days and each one of those days had been on a plane at some point or something like some (laughs) crazy schedule. But uh, when he was around really cool guy, we did some of his um, web cartridges and things like that. I have a quick one on that. The web cartridges were made, I believe in London and they never provided them to us or they got lost or taken or, or maybe went to some show or something and the directors on uh, Infinity War wanted him to use one. Uh, I don't even think it made it in the film, but we didn't have any. They just thought it up. Like, why don't you use a web cartridge to do this? Which was an outside of the box thinking kind of thing. And we had about 45 minutes 
before we filmed that. So we had 45 minute lead time on a prop that was out of the country. And we were able to track down the 3D file that was used to originally create them. And we 3D printed five of them in 45 minutes <laughs> and had them painted by the onset painter and had them there before we rolled. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> Just in time. Um, Just in time. Uh, because We'll do this in the last one, Hulk, which I think is interesting because we have both Mark Ruffalo is Mark Ruffalo for a lot of it, but then mm -hmm. he is this also larger character at some point later and the probably reference past and stuff involved in that. Right. The smart um, Hulk, Brainy Hulk or Smart Hulk. Smart Hulk, Smart Hulk. Smart yeah, Hulk. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had three different Hulks because we had uh, in the very beginning of Infinity War when in Asgard, when Thanos was there, he was fight, uh, the real Hulk or That's original right. Hulk That's was right. fighting Thanos. And then um, we had Mark Ruffalo who couldn't become Hulk because he wanted to, but he couldn't. He was having an internal battle. And then he became Smart Hulk, which is kind of the hybrid between Dr. Banner and Hulk. All three of them are different heights. So they all, you know, well, Mark Ruffalo's Banner's height. And then we had two different Hulk backpacks for Eyeline. Ruffalo, another good guy. Man, I can't tell you, the cast and the crew on this, it was like just such a fun experience. Everybody was so good at their job that everyone could relax. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like, it, let's all be so competent that it doesn't have to be so serious and uptight. And, and everyone really showed up in that way. And I think Ruffalo is one of those people where he would just show up and be really vibrant and not nervous or, or worried or self-conscious or anything. He just knew he was going to deliver so he could be really chill and interact with everybody like family. It really, it was the most family type of experience on a film I've ever been. <laughs> you know, I worked with Mark Ruffalo back on Just Like Heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, he gifted every department a, a bottle of alcohol at Christmas, I think that was. Yeah, he's, a <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a good guy. I'm yeah, something about him also is, you know, they all, get, they all get their personal drivers and their cars that bring them to set. He, can't, he comes to set in the tiniest little hybrid. Because he doesn't he want to impact the earth. Everyone has their SUV and their, you know, Range Rover, their blacked out Chevy Tahoe or whatever it is that Transpo provides. And he does a special request for a small hybrid car to come and, and do that. Um, yeah, it was really cool. And I'll leave you with one last thing. And then I do have to go. Speaking of gifts, uh, the gifts on this show, oh, my goodness. But uh, two in particular. Uh, the first one, and then I'll leave you the best with the last, was the uh, – the brothers, uh, Joe and Anthony Russo, gave a custom pair of Nike tennis shoes to the crew that obviously I have never worn. <laughs> and it has the, a little acronym for uh, Infinity War on it or, or something on there. Um, it was really cool, nice pair of Nike tennis shoes, all custom, custom colors, chosen by the directors. And, um, and then something that was really epic was uh, Robert Downey Jr. He filled all of stage 15 at Pinewood Studios here in Atlanta, just south of Atlanta, with a, a small shorty director's chair, customized with every single person's name on it, with a chair back that said Infinity War, and a little plaque on the arm of the chair that, that was uh, a thank you, a personal thank you from him with his little autograph on it. It was all laser engraved. Of course, but um, wow. Yeah, yeah, but it took the entirety of stage 15 because the cat, uh, the crew and the cast were so huge that we had to get a chair for every single person. But I mean, gosh, I can't even start to tell you the cost of that gift, but everyone was so ecstatic and so happy. And I ha you know, I have it here 
at my house and, and everyone on the crew got one. It was really, really a cool, amazing thing. You do Robert sit did. in that, right? You're not, you, that's not, you do actually. Well, I do. I, I sit in it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I sit in that one. I feel really good about sitting in that. That was good. And I, I think he, yeah, Robert was, you know, he, he knew what was going to happen at the end of this film and he knew where he had come from and, and the ride he had been on. And, and so he, he, did some really amazing gifting. I think, uh, I know, he gave Chris Evans a 67 Camaro that was completely decked out. And there was some significance to the year. I think it had something to do with the character or maybe a birthday or some, something significant about the year of the Camaro. And inside of the center of the steering wheel was a Captain America shield. I mean, he did some serious gifting on, on this film. He's such a great guy. I've worked with him for a long time. It was, uh, it was a sad day, you know, his kind of quote unquote last day. But uh, yeah, some of the gifts were really, really a cool thing. Just add, added to that kind of family experience for the whole project. Thanks for sharing, Travis. This yeah, has no been worries. good. No, thanks for having me. Thanks again.